as Christians find ourselves in a race, a spiritual race. And the writer of the book of Hebrews decided to use this as a very valuable illustration to talk about our running the Christian race of life. When you think about the races that were run in the first century, when the books of the Bible were written, it was a very common thing for a person to be able to go to uh, what was sometimes called the Olympic Games, the Isthmus Games, and many of those were those that people would have some familiarity with. As you think about it, the book of Hebrews reflects a very serious concern for people falling away from the Lord. For just a few moments, I'd like to direct your attention to just a few verses in the book of Hebrews as we set the stage for our lesson this evening. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that were spoken, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I want to draw your attention to the fact that what he's talking about is making sure we pay real close attention, give more earnest heed to the things that were written and spoken. You and I need to make sure we focus on that because it's very possible that we can neglect such a great salvation that the Lord has provided for us. But you keep on reading as you get to chapter 3 and you look at verses 12 and 13. And he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He understands that each of us could possibly develop this evil heart of unbelief. And so we have to encourage one another. We have to lift one another up. We have to take God's word and urge it upon another. I could go further, but as you get to chapter 10... If you look at verses 25 and 26, he says, Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day of approaching. The writer of the book of Hebrews understands that there are some people who are neglecting, chapter 2. They are developing an evil heart of unbelief, chapter 3. They are somehow drifting away from their commitment and they're not assembling together. And in so doing, they are willfully sinning. But then you get to verses 35 and 36. For you, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You need to be people who will join in this race, run it hard, run with endurance to finish the race. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to give us techniques, abilities, to be able to deal with the struggle of running the Christian life. And when you get to chapter 12, verse 1, 
I'd suggest to you there's two things that are worthy of our study. And he talks about removing the weights and repenting of the sins. He said, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. So for a few minutes, let's consider the weights and the sins that he speaks about. First of all, the idea of removing weights. I can remember vividly when I was a teenager and those men, young men, who played on our football team. My cousin was one of the linemen and he would wear weights around his ankle, little sand bags that were made out of leather. Uh, They seemed like they weighed a ton when I was a little boy. But he did that so he'd be able to strengthen his legs so when he got in the football game, he'd be able to move quickly. Those who were the runners, we had a few young men on um, in my class who were track runners, and they would walk around every day with weights on their ankles. I think probably it became a status symbol, but nevertheless, there was a purpose to it. You have to realize in biblical times, there were people who wore weights to train them in their running. But when it came time to run the race or came time to play the games, you take the weights off. That's the time when you want to be as swift as possible, as capable as possible. I'd like to make a couple of observations about the usage of this. Number one, they were chosen on purpose. When you put weights on, that was something that you chose to do because you wanted to. It was conscious in your choosing to do. Second of all, they represent things that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves. Because if you start looking at weights and sins, weights represent things that may not be wrongs. They could be, but they're things that are possibly in themselves are right, but they are hindering us. In fact, the original word that is used here for weights means that which hinders one from doing something, a weight, a burden, an impediment. That's the lexicon definition of this word. The idea is something that hinders me. Now with that in mind, I can start going through the scriptures and I can find things that do hinder me in the running of my Christian race. You go to the book of Luke, to chapter 8, you understand that Luke is recording a parable of our Lord, the parable of the soils. You have the uh, soil by the wayside, you have the soil that's the rocky ground, you have the soil that was a thorny ground, and then you have the good soil. And when he discusses the parable and what it means, he said in verse 11, now the seed is the word of God, but you drop down to verse 14 and he talks about the thorny soil and he says, now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who when they have heard go out and are choked by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. What he's trying to tell you is, is there's some people that when you look at their lives and how the word of God indwells their heart, the thorns, the difficulties, the problems of life are crowding it out. There's a parallel used similar in Luke 21, but there are some things here that are 
necessarily wrong. He said, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of life the day it should come upon you unexpectedly. Yes, there are things that are simple and wrong, the, the carousing, the drunkenness. But what about the cares of this life? Those things can weigh you down. And I believe that when you take the context of Luke 21, and as he's looking at the destruction of Jerusalem there, he was concerned that those even who were Christians would allow themselves to get so involved in the affairs of this life that they would miss the signs that were present before their eyes. In a very similar way, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul is trying to talk to Timothy and about his commitment. Here is a young man who has been persuaded to be a teacher of others. You know, in chapter 2 verse 2, he talks about the things which you've heard from me among many witnesses. He said the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But then you get to verse 4 and he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I wouldn't want those men who are devoted to defending our country to get into another country and be involved in a warfare and then couldn't do their job on the battlefield because they were so involved in some sort of enterprise to make money. I want them there to do their job. God wants his people to do their job and you don't want to get so involved in the affairs of this life you can't do what you're supposed to do. And you see, some people have found that even good things in their life have crowded out the Lord. Think about it in your own life. And let me just try to look at some areas where we've allowed some things to weight us down. And I've tried to put the ones which the scriptures have used, but I think are really practical. And that is the pursuit of possessions. I would say most of us can look at our own lives and say, we have so much we don't even know what to do with it. We find storage places in our homes to fill all that we can put there and then ever so often we have to have a yard sale so we can sell stuff to make room for the new stuff that we're buying. Is there anybody who doesn't believe that we have become just a possessor of possessions? In Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus said to this young man who was there wanting a division of the property between his, him and his brother, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And yet, is that not exactly how we measure successful people today? We measure successful people by how much money they have acquired. We measure the success of people by how much they've been able to acquire the lands, the houses. But when I go to scriptures and I read about the rich man and Lazarus, I see the rich man fared sumptuously every day. He had all he could use and then some. 
And I can see a man like Lazarus who just wanted the scraps that came from the rich man's table. Just what was going to be thrown out. That's all he wanted. And nobody was giving him anything. The rich man lifted up his eyes in torments. Lazarus opened his eyes in Abraham's bosom in paradise. You see, sometimes we place priorities in the wrong places. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, Paul would tell Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some reaching after have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Second area, which I believe that has allowed us to be drawn away and which is a real weight on us is the pursuit of pleasure. We want things to make us happy. We want things to make us comfortable. We want things that entertain us. Look at the amount of money we spend on entertainment, whether it's going to movies, whether it's providing our cable and satellite, whether it's our televisions, whether it's our music or whatever, we become obsessed with pleasing ourselves. In James chapter 4, he makes some very serious observations. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and have not. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war and you have not because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may consume upon your pleasures. I didn't go ahead and put verse 4, but it belongs there. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God and whoever would make himself a friend of the world has made himself an enemy of God? You see, our desire for pleasure has caused many of us to forsake the assembling of services to go watch people line up and play football or to go to a, uh, some sort of concert to entertain us. It's become an obsession, if you will, in our society. That's got to come first. It's time for us to lay aside some of those weights that weighed us down. Pursuit of personal obligations. You know, sometimes we find ourselves so obligated in so many areas that we are no longer capable of doing anything good for God. We're no longer capable of trying to go out and do good deeds because we're obligated to this or we're obligated to that. You know, in Luke chapter 9, the Lord was out trying to make disciples. Men who would follow him and be devoted. And there were some saying, Lord, we'll follow you. And he says, okay, follow me. And then they said, oh, but uh, we, we've got something we've got to take care of first. Notice Luke 9, 59. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury and go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
When people read this, they somehow have questions. Didn't the Lord teach the importance of obligations to family? Absolutely he did. He taught a man to honor his father and mother. And if you didn't do that, you were not following the commands of God. 1 Timothy chapter 5, any will not provide for his own, he's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Oh, you've got to take care of those of your family. But I'd suggest to you that if you look at the way this is stated, it's not as if someone's father had just passed away and in a time of mourning he needed to go and take care of his final arrangements. No, it's almost like I need to spend some time until it's time to bury my father. But there's some more pressing things. What you have done, he's saying, is you have put this ahead of serving me. You need to go and preach the kingdom of God. Sometimes we have allowed ourselves to become so obligated to everything that is of a physical nature that we are of no spiritual value to the Lord. That's very easy to take place. What's weighing you down? What's hindering you from being a faithful Christian? If you were to look in your own life, what kind of weights are there? Let's talk about sins for just a few moments. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Or the sin which so easily besets us. The truth is, is that every one of us have a sin, or maybe sins plural, that are real temptations for us. There may be some sins that are not temptations for us. I've met many people who are truly of a humble character and pride would seemingly never be a problem for them. I've met people with whom they have such an anger towards sinfulness that they would never be a drunk, they would never be a homosexual. Those sins don't even enter the temptation for them. But there is for each of us a sin which most easily ensnares us. Now, here's what we generally do. We generally want to distract the attention away from that sin which most easily ensnares us and focus our attention on someone else's. You remember Matthew 7? Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged for what judgment you judge. You will be judged. And what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank that's in your own eye? You are looking at his problem so that you won't look at your own problem. Or Luke chapter 18. You remember the Lord talked about two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Why does he focus on other men? Because if I focus on them and on their faults, I don't focus on that problem that I have. He says, they're extortioners. They're unjust. They're adulterers. Even as this tax collector. And then he begins to focus on the good things that he does. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I possess. But see, that's a distraction technique. We want to talk about running the Christian race. We want to talk about everybody else's sins but our own. And here is a fact. Everyone is drawn away by his own lust. By our own attraction, our own desires. James said, don't blame God for it. In James 1 verse 14, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. What is he saying to us? Don't blame God. It's your own wishes, your own desires that are dragging you down. One of the hardest things to do is to recognize in and of ourselves, this is my problem. I've got to deal with it. Let me give you some examples in the Bible of people who struggled in various circumstances with a sin that evidently was very easy for them to commit. I think most of us would think about David. And if you study 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll notice that David was in Jerusalem when everybody else normally goes out to battle. Chapter 11, verse 1. But David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened one evening as David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. David committed adultery. He allowed himself to look, to lust, to desire, to take. Oh, he was drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And you've got to somewhere along the line say, if I know that's my problem, I've got to avoid it. Or what about Peter? Peter was a very proud person, very impetuous person. He would often speak up first and Sometimes he would say the right thing. Remember Matthew 16? Who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And then Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But there are other times when Peter spoke up. In fact, even that same chapter. And the Lord has to tell him, get behind me, Satan. One of the things that Peter said was, everybody will fall but me. Everybody else can stumble. They'll, they'll do that. But when I get to Matthew 26, 69, Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another girl, saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. In a little while, those who came by came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear. Okay, you don't 
His speech didn't betray him then, at least not for being a child of God and being a follower of Jesus. Let me tell you what happens to many people. As long as they're in the company of those who are godly folks, they act just as nice and as wholesome and holy as you would want anyone to act. But you put them in the presence of ungodly people and people around them are using vulgar profanity and you know what they'll soon start doing? They'll start using it themselves. They find themselves easy to be influenced to do the wrong thing. Let me give you a third example. The Apostle Paul was perhaps one of the meanest men to start with. And then after he became a Christian, he became as devoted of a man as one could ask for. And because of God's blessings upon Paul, he gave him visions, gave him talents, gave him abilities. And when I get to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 6, he said, For though I might boast, desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears me to be. And lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now he goes on to say, I asked the Lord to relieve me of this. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. What this evidently indicates is the Apostle Paul struggled with something. He evidently struggled with boasting. He struggled with, with getting too high of a view of himself. And the Lord had to humble him. When I go to 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, Paul says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do you mean that David, Peter, Paul, all these holy men of God struggle with a particular sin in their own lives? Absolutely they did. If they did, and Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, I do, it's incumbent upon me to know what that sin is. Demas, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, he's forsaken me having loved this present world I have known a number of good brethren that I went to school with that I thought would probably be the next guy in Woods, Gus Nichols, Tom Hollins. They had the talent. They had the ability. Much more ability than many of the rest of us. Some of them have left the Lord's church. Some of them have gone back into the world. Why? Because some of them have a love for a woman. Some of them have a love of fame. Some of them a love for fortune. You see, there's a number of things that can be sinful that can pull us away 
But you see, the truth is that I can choose to reject sin. I can actually say no. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it? That means every time I'm confronted with a temptation, there is the potential, the possibility for me to say no. I can see Moses doing that. Hebrews 11 talks about his great faith. He says, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what he did, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He did something. He calculated. He says, the reproach of Christ is greater riches than these worldly things. If I do sin, I can choose to repent of it. You see, first I would like to reject it and say no, and I can do that if I will. But what if I don't? What if I give in? In Luke 5, verse 32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Oh, that means since we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us have to repent. When I find that sin in my life, I've got to repent of it. I can choose not only to reject, to repent, but also to replace. Goodness does not exist in a vacuum. Everyone's life is going to be filled with something. And I can choose either I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to pursue righteousness I've been studying for a lesson that I'm supposed to deliver somewhere else this summer from Ephesians chapter 5. Particularly as you get to verse 18, he says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts, giving thanks to God always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear. You know, I, I'm, I've got to choose here. I don't want to be unwise in the choices I make. Don't choose the wine. Don't be drunk with wine. But be filled with the Spirit. Romans 13, verses 12 through 14. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. and Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. If we'll take all of our energy and run the race, we can't carry with us all these unnecessary burdens. I can't take with me the weights of things in this life that are not that important. Nor can I take with me all these sins which are going to cause me to stumble and to fall. I'm going to run the race. It's going to be hard enough to run it without all these other problems going along. 
Oh, but I need some help. I need somebody to give me the ability to run this race. Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to end with this metaphor of running the race from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. He references this and he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may be able to obtain it. And everyone who competes for prizes is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. Run in such a way as you may be able to obtain it. You know, sermons do two or three things. Number one, they educate, they inform. But number two, they're meant to motivate, to encourage. And each of us, as we look at our lives, needs some encouragement that as we go out this week, that we make the right choices, that we avoid the wrong ones, and that we focus our Christian life on being better, being the kind of people God wants us to be. If this lesson has influenced you to do better, then it's accomplished its purpose. At the end of each service, we extend the Lord's invitation. It's His invitation to come to Him. Either to become a Christian or as a child of God coming back saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. If you need to become a Christian by being baptized for the remission of your sins or you need the prayers of this congregation, we invite you to do that while we together stand and sing.